Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, Episode 71. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today we have an extra special guest, or any guest is special, and that's uh, William Ryan, the CEO of Granite Cheers. William, or Will, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Derek, and thank you so much for having me today. Of course, yeah. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion, and, and there's a lot to get to. And uh, I think I saw in your bio, uh, you, you're actually a pretty big, uh, we'll call it European football, but for those who we may confuse, a, a soccer fan, right? Do you, do you have a, a favorite team? I do, yes. I'm a big fan. I'm a big uh, Manchester United fan. Um, and so it's kind of funny because uh, literally the first week of March, I was uh, in Manchester watching uh, Man United play in a European Cup game. And obviously, you know, just before kind of probably one of the last games before everything shut down. So I was very lucky to to do that. I hadn't been there for a while, but um, yeah, I was over there and, and you know, strange to look back on my phone and see the pictures of, uh, and the videos obviously of that game, um, you know, based upon what we've just gone through over the last sort of couple of months. It, it is kind of amazing. And I know the, the German leagues opened up and uh, I, I played, uh, I'll refer to it as soccer, but yeah, I, I played, I played football in, uh, uh, in high school, but that's, you know, going on God, I don't know how many years ago that was. So I, I've always followed it. And it's interesting because I live on, not on the West Coast, but I live in Arizona. And so the games come on here, the Premier League or, or the Bundesliga, you know, six, seven in the morning. But I've got a nine-year-old and, and of course, and a dog. So between the dog and the nine-year-old, they're, they're going to wake me up early. And uh, <laughs> it just makes, it's just really nice. You know, you grab a cup of coffee, a little breakfast, and before you know it, you watch a match. So uh, it's, I've, I've followed it and I, I like the, the relegation and promotion aspect. I think when you look at incentives, like in economics, you think about incentives, uh, in the NBA, you're almost better off just trying to lose, but there's a real penalty if, if you don't do well. I mean, you might go to the second division and never get back up, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a very interesting system, you know, when you explain it to Americans um, and contrast it with, you know, the NFL and, and other leagues, because in many ways, I think it's sort of counter to what people might think in that in Europe, you have a, a ruthlessly capitalistic system, if you want to look at it like that, um, uh, which would be not probably some, the first thing you'd think of when you use the word Europe. Uh, and then in the US, you have something that is, um, you know, very much, you know, socialist uh, in terms of yeah, a league like the NFL, where you know, the owners control the league and you can't, once you're in, you're in, you, you don't, you don't go out. Um, whereas obviously in the UK on the soccer leagues, you know, if you perform badly, you're out and you get replaced by someone who's done better. Yeah, no, it, I, I kind of like the system, but it, it's, uh, anyway, we, we, this is probably, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about investing and, and, uh, portfolio management. We could probably go on for, uh, for hours, but now it is, it is interesting. And, you know, we think about the relegation and promotion. It's, uh, uh, I know I was going to talk to you about, you know, the idea of good companies, bad companies, companies that are they're more likely to grow. And it's, you know, one of the strategies that you run, uh, you know, uh, one of your, your ETFs X out, right? It's almost like a, a promotion relegation strategy, right? I mean, you're, you're promoting, you're relegating companies, right? In that fund. That's exactly right. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very new take um, on investing kind of more broadly. So I'd say, you know, think of it like this, that um, technological disruption, we think, is probably one of the largest forward-facing risks 
faced by all investors. So the question is what to do about it. And as we know, there are kind of broadly speaking, two kind of schools of thoughts um, in the investment world, which is on the one hand, it's um, the school of picking winners. And that's largely speaking, traditional active management. And that's the idea that, you know, by picking the right companies, by identifying the winning companies, you can outperform the market. And of course, as we all know, that's, that's incredibly difficult to do. Um, and the vast majority of active managers don't outperform the market, you know, over time. And so that kind of led to the other church, which I'm kind of a part of, which is the, the index and ETF community, which a lot of investors, you know, there, you know, say, well, we can't beat the market, then we'll just own it. And there's a obviously long discussion about what that actually means. But what it means is you're accept, accepting guaranteed underperformance um, when you factor in fees and taxes. And so what XOUT does is sort of flips at both of those things on its head and says, well, actually, is there a way to do this better? And actually, if we identify companies that are bad companies or companies that are vulnerable to technological disruption, if we X out those companies, can we actually outperform by excluding losers as opposed to picking winners? And in some respects, you know, you flip it to, is it actually more important what you leave out of your portfolio than what you put in? And that's really the framework that, um, that we go by with X out. I think it's, it's interesting. And, um, I want to get to some of the, the companies that maybe you, you exclude, because uh, I, think, I think that's interesting as well. But there's this whole push and pull between you know, value stocks and, and growth stocks. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, but then you look back, and sometimes you could be right about what's going to happen. Um, I always think about it, it. You could have predicted that everyone's going to have a cell phone in, in 20 or 30 years, and you might have you know, put all your money into Nokia, and that turned out to be the wrong bet, or, or Netflix versus Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And there was always that friction, right? With uh, The friction was you didn't want to get in your car and go to the, the Blockbuster, and so you wound up paying late fees. But uh, you know that it's sort of interesting to think about where technology is going and some companies that adapt it, or um, I just think it's this interesting dichotomy between the two. Yeah, and I think that it's... Um you know, I, I don't want to kind of, it's always dangerous to oversimplify things, but I think sometimes it can be, can be instructive. And so in, in some respect, what we're talking about here is that, you know, every company that wishes to remain a going concern must become a tech company. And, and I know that's, I know that's obviously ridiculously oversimplified, but in some respect, I think it helps to kind of frame, frame this discussion uh, in that lens. You know, and, and, uh, it's kind of funny you think about, uh, and I, I always bring up Domino's and, and Google because they, they IPO'd, I think it was months apart in 2004. And I, I checked before you know we, we went on air today. And in February, somebody did an article and, and Domino's has returned like 5,600 cumulative percent and Google's you know somewhere like 3,500. I could be off on the math. But there are some people who would say, you know, Domino's, they're a store and they, and they make pizza. But they're really more a logistics company, and they've got the app, and it's certainly not the best pizza. And growing up in the New York area, I, that would never be my first choice. But yeah. are they a technology company? Like, is that the example? Well, I think it's certainly one of the examples, and it, and it's a great point because, um, as you just rightly pointed out, they just went into the S and P five hundred um, fairly recently. But it's about th- this is about companies that can 
adapt to this digital age and companies that have a digital strategy. So in that, in that sort of way, I mean, think about all the ways that pizza can be technologized. So you have digital marketing, you know, ads obviously that go with that, the gamification of points, um, rewards, micro-targeting of, of existing customers. And so it, in, in many ways, you know, by mobilizing social media for a restaurant, um, ultimately, uh, you get a broad expansion of the customer base and you can turn those sort of traditional storefronts, if you will, into you know, Amazon-style fulfillment centers. And, and I think in terms of the restaurant, it's a great example of how something that people would identify as a fundamentally traditional you know, business can adapt and change and can um, really massively sort of scale its game by adopting a digital strategy. And so, you know, when you think about um, the way that some of these companies are repositioning, uh, and I think Domino's is a good example of that, you know, you think about the pizza, it's less about being a pizza restaurant, a traditional serving customers in a restaurant, much more about pizza delivery on the internet. You know, I, I look back at uh, a company that's certainly not around anymore. You might remember, what was it? The Pets.com. And, and before people think, well, isn't that the pet store that I order from? That that domain was bought at bankruptcy. But, you know, in 99, Pets.com IPOs, and I think nine months later. But back then, um, no cloud computing. I mean, the, the distribution was different. There are any number of reasons why people say, how does it work now versus back then? And that's, you know, I, I, I don't want to do a whole session on pets.com. I think plenty of people have done that. But it, it is sort of interesting to think, like, um, why that worked back then and, and how technology changes what really is just, it's a pet store, right? Yeah, exactly. But I think, again, it goes to the, the sort of the mindset. And what we're talking about here is a mindset change. And the current mindset would be, well, is pets.com a buy or a sell? Or is Google a buy or a sell? Is Domino's a buy or a sell? And, and what we're trying to do is to say, you know, the vast majority of performance that generates in a major stock market index, so stock market index returns, we know that the vast majority of those returns come from only a handful of companies. So people own those companies anyway. And we all, we all know, roughly speaking, who those companies are. And so really, the, the way to add value is actually to screen out the companies that are detracting from that performance. Um, and, and you know, spend much less time thinking about who's going to be the next Google or who's going to be you know, the next Zoom um, or whatever it may be, um, because that is incredibly difficult to do. We don't know who those companies are going to be, but we know who are the companies that, that are most likely to, to underperform. What are some of the, the attributes that, um, is it you know, free cash flow growing? Is it uh, net margins? Are there any sort of just high-level tells when if you covered up the name of a company, you just looked at some of the numbers on either quantitative or fundamental basis. Some things that, that, that sort of, you know, hey, I don't, I don't know which one is, is it going to be Nokia? Is it going to be Apple? But I know when I see this, it, it, it's sort of interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that, and that I think is, you know, one of the things that, that I think is, is kind of compelling about the approach is that, you know, for, first of all, um, what XOUT is, it's an index strategy. So just to be clear, this is not, you know, me or any of my team kind of, um, you know, throwing darts at a dartboard um, in terms of picking companies that we personally think um, are not likely to make it or are zombies, etc. No, th- this is a this is a rigorous, um, you know, fundamental process. 
um, where it's entirely rules-based. So we look at seven fundamental factors um, and we score the 500 largest companies um, in the US by market cap and we score them one to five. So five being higher score, one being lowest score, and we eliminate actually the 250. So we eliminate half with the lowest scores. So when you think about the, the types of um, you know, fundamental metrics that we use, I, I think people, when they listen to this, I, I would hope people would think, well, that sort of makes sense. Um, and in many ways, it's what uh, a lot of active managers would use to try and identify good companies. But here we're using it to flip the paradigm and identify companies that, that are not going to make it. So, for example, you know, one criteria would be revenue. So can a company increase its sales or not? You know, employee growth, is it firing or hiring people? R&D investment, is a company investing in itself or is it refusing to invest in itself? You know, stock buybacks, you know, is it respecting its shareholders and how are those buybacks being done? Are they done out of free cash flow or is the company having to borrow money uh, to do that? You know, profitability, can a company make money or not? Uh, or earnings forecasts, is it expected to make money? And then we have a management score as well um, in terms of is the, is the company outperforming or underperforming from a management perspective. But I think those are all, in my mind, they're sensible fundamental metrics. Um, but blended together, they, can, they create a sort of compelling um, picture of companies that are, that are not doing well. You know, and just taking a look at one that, that gets excluded, and, and I don't know if anyone has, has asked you about this one. Um, and, I, you know, the nice thing is... Uh, Okay, well, look at look at Walmart, right? So Walmart is is one that you exclude. And, and look, um, someone who doesn't do, uh, I mean, I we manage portfolios that are really broad, and we hedge and we use off. So I'm not doing individual stock picking, but I just I looked at Walmart, and I said, uh, okay, let me. It was just sort of interesting when I looked back. I think I went back to 2005, and you know their their PE has expanded, their share count is down, their Net income has been lower. Um, net margins have, have lowered, although they were never a high margin business. Um, and really, their play now, I think, what is it? They bought Jet and they want to, you know, probably the bull case for them is they figure out how to. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting. You know, Walmart, most people would think, well, wait a second, they're Walmart, right? <laughs> um, that is one uh, which, I mean, that, that's our largest X out at the moment. So that means buy market cap. Um, that's uh, the largest, uh, our largest stock that we eliminate that would be in our broad um, sort of universe. And uh, again, I think this is the great thing about the approach is that it's, it just takes the emotion out of it. And you don't have to get into these sort of discussions about the things that Walmart's doing well and the things that Walmart's doing not so well. I mean, I'd point, I'd point to a few things. So, you know, one, um, since Walmart became the top X out, um, in our in our index, the the market's up, you know, almost ten percent, while Walmart's down seven percent. And I think the the probably the biggest factor um, for people to take away in terms of our model uh, is that they just haven't been able to grow um, faster than the the rate of inflation for years, and so they haven't been able to innovate um, effectively meaning that um, the digital strategies that they've tried to employ, you just briefly mentioned Jet.com, which they uh, actually exited, just in, in announced actually over the last sort of couple of weeks, but it hasn't been able to move the needle um, in a way that uh, would really impact the stock. 
And so from, from our model perspective, um, these sort of things like um, acquisitions of Jet.com and Flipkart, um, all these things, which on the one hand, you know, a, a non-rules-based sort of investor might look at and say, well, these are, these are pos- positive things. But from our perspective, you know, the intractable problem is that um, it can't grow revenues at the pace of inflation. So on a real basis, the, the sales are actually going backwards. And so for Walmart, you know, if you're already selling half a trillion a year worth of goods, you know, how do you sell an extra 30 billion? And that's the question that, that they so fundamentally haven't been able to answer. Um, and so, you know, really, when you think about Walmart, just think of a company that has just such big size that it just becomes very difficult to to move the needle for them in terms of growth. And that's kind of the big problem. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And and uh, you mentioned real versus nominal. I, I just looked at the nominal numbers and um, it, it was, you know, obviously, and um, I may ask you about, you know, dividends versus buybacks just in, in general, but it was interesting to look and see, um, yeah, I mean, just the, the net income, I think the sales, uh, you know, if you look 10 years ago, uh, I could be wrong, but I think the net income is is lower uh, than it was. And I, I don't want to make this all about Walmart, but it was just, it's almost like, you know, as well, a sports think, fan. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the contrast, so one of our top, um, one of our top holdings by contrast is Amazon. And, and again, you know, we, we don't want to go on about Amazon as, as how good a business that is. But the point is, um, I think if you, if you, if you do the juxtaposition and you say, you know, fundamentally the strategy is long Amazon and short Walmart, um, that's kind of long digital or short physical in terms of, um, the way that those companies are positioned, and, and I think I think most people would agree. And again, this is this is not a um, this is not a qualitative thing, but um, that Amazon is probably the better positioned company for the digital age. With regards to to buybacks and dividends, and I always look at it. Look, it's a return of of capital. It's a return of cash to investors. And and the nice thing about buybacks, it gives the CEOs more flexibility. Certainly, if a if the CEO said our dividend's going to be two dollars, then four dollars, then a dollar, um, one the analysts wouldn't know what the heck to do with them, but the stock would probably get punished, right? Um, and then how, how would you, if you're some you know tried and true fundamental intrinsic value person, how would you even? But I mean, I I think there's this debate, and really it it is a return of capital, um, but I think you have a little nuance to that, right? To, just to, in regards to buybacks. Well, I think I think our take on it is, um, you know, fundamentally, I, I think most people would agree that buybacks are a good thing from a shareholder perspective. However, our our twist on it is, you know, and again, this comes into the whole concept of zombie companies and um, the interest rate paradigm that we're currently in. But we think that there's a difference between a buyback which is done out of free cash flow and a buyback that's done through borrowed money. And, and in other words, the free cash flow one is much better um, from from our perspective than if you're borrowing money to buy back stocks. And I think you know we can talk about that, like I said, in the context of of zombies. But kind of shuffling around borrowed money, I don't think is is particularly helpful or instructive. And so we we like companies that that do that um, out of free cash flow. Yeah, no, and I, I definitely want to get to to zombies and inflation. And, and uh, before we go there, I just thought it was interesting that, um, you know, the whole value versus growth and they're, they're the Buffett crowd and and they're like, hey, we, there are really cheap companies and, and the contrary argument would be they're cheap for a reason. But I, I do think some, like in March of, of 2099, 
none of those tech stocks ever lived up to their value. And again, I just look back, you know, 14 years or so. Why 14? Because that's that's when I pulled up, right? And you could have bought, uh, I think it was Apple, at basically one time forward 14 year, you know, uh, net income, right? And, and I think uh, you could have bought one and a half times. In other words, the market cap of Amazon and Apple, and then you look at 14 years later, uh, you were buying out of a forward 14 PE of something like one to one and a half. They've lived up to their value. And in some ways, mm-hmm. maybe they were value stocks all along. I just think it's interesting when, when you get into the value versus growth. Yeah, I, I think this is this is a massive topic. And again, we could do a whole series of podcasts on this. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, I think this is like an existential question for the investor today, which is, you know, the, is value is value even relevant or is value dead? Um, does it even exist anymore? And I think, um, I guess let's let's kind of start from the from the beginning. So, what is value investing, or what is a value stock? Well, I, I guess that um, you know the common probably definition would be uh, a value company would be a good business, you know, in air quotes, um, that's trading below its fair value. So, therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what's a good business? Um, and, you know, again, coming back to the X out parlance, what we're trying to do is identify what we think are not good businesses and exclude them. But, but again, go back to value. So a good business, it's one defined that is, um, you know, a company that's trading at a low price relative to its assets, its earnings, or its cash flows, um, often found in unfashionable industries or growing slower than other companies in the market. And so if you look at something like the Russell 3000 uh, value index, which in some respects is the kind of bellwether of, uh, of value um, in terms of the largest spread of value companies, you see that the biggest sectors in that index are financials, healthcare, utilities. Now, I think healthcare, you know, clearly there's, there's, a, there's a difference between, uh, again, companies that are adopting technology um, and you know, healthcare tech and sort of legacy healthcare companies. Um, financials, utilities, you know, similar, but ultimately, you know, are those really the sectors you you want to own? And I think, you know, some some things I, I just thought that would be worth um, kind of mentioning and things that we think about in terms of this argument on value, which is, you know, when you look at traditional value, you know, in the past, um, one of the things that the value investor would would look most at is its physical assets, so property. You know, plants, equipment made up the bulk of a company's value. But today, you know, that's changed massively. And, you know, in today's market, you know, you've got intangible assets, so non-physical assets, such as IP, you know, patents, you know, trademarks, brand, data, software, they've become a much bigger part of a company's value. So interestingly enough, um, there's, a, there's a survey that, uh, for example, in 1975, um, in terms of uh, the S&P 500, uh, 85% of companies in the S&P, you know, the value of those stocks, 85% of the value was in tangible assets. You know, now today, that's around 15%. So that number has fallen. It's almost flipped completely on its head. Um, so the vast majority of value ascribed to companies in the market today is actually intangibles. And that's not a traditional value metric. So you know, value, you can argue, is just, it's just the wrong frame of reference today for companies. And, um, you know, look, look at a, I just thought I'd mention it because obviously we're, we're living the, uh, the COVID lockdown at the moment, at, at least obviously here in New York, where I'm uh, speaking to you today from. But, 
you know, Zoom, everybody's been on a Zoom call, I'm sure. You know, that was a company that um, IPO'd uh, just, a, just over a year ago um, at a valuation of $10 billion. You know, that company's now worth $50 billion. Um, so that's more than the entire U.S. airline industry. And I, I, I just think that there are these kind of fundamental shifts that are occurring um, in the economy, which regardless of sort of how you label it, um, I, I think is changing things um, really forever. And the concept or the frame of reference to me in terms of traditional value, I think is gone. I mean, look at the, the most famous value investors in the world. You know, they haven't been able to outperform and they keep sort of waiting for it to come back in favor. Um, and we all know, you know who, who those people are, but it just, it just hasn't worked. And I think, you know, you mentioned what we're currently going through and it's whether you think about online education or the, the Zoom model. And, and by the way, how did Microsoft or Google not, not that's a, we could go off the rails here, but like yeah. they, they created no friction and all of a sudden, you know, Google and, and, and Microsoft can do what they do anyway. But no, it's, I think this current crisis has sort of fast forwarded a lot of the trends that were going to happen anyway. And, you know, you've, you look at JC Penney, which um, I, I pulled up their their interest coverage ratio, which is of course you know their their income over their their debt payments, and I think it was point two. Like you, you're not even making enough to pay the debt service. Uh, but I think you know the zombies. Uh, this this crisis has sort of fast forwarded that quite quite rapidly. You know. Yeah, I mean, in in, in 1964, you know, the average tenure of a company in the S&P 500 was 33 years. I mean, think about that for a second. So 33 years, most, most investors, that would be their career. You would have um, a company that would still be in the major market index for their entire career, never change. And then in 2016, you know, that tenure dropped to, to 24 years and now is expected to drop to under 10 years uh, in the next decade. So, what, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is technological disruption and that uh, it's just happening at a pace which is difficult for the market to factor in. I mean, exponential growth is just something that the human brain finds uh, impossible really to, uh, to compute. And so that's meaning that there are these seismic shifts going on that are just very, very difficult for, for the market to price in. So from our perspective, again, it's just so difficult to pick those winners and really identify you know, who's going to be the winner, as you, as you rightly pointed out. Um, you know, certainly Amazon, uh, Google, Microsoft, um, they all have their own kind of versions of, of Zoom and certainly certainly Microsoft and Google, uh, the main. But, you know, who would have thought that Zoom would be the one that would sort of capture the imagination? Just very, very difficult to predict. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great point. And um, you talk about shifts and, and paradigm shifts. Um, I want to transition to, to interest rates a little bit and, and maybe your view. And, and when I was, I wrote my book and I, uh, the Bank of England uh, was nice enough to have something like, you know, interest rates back to the 1600s that I was able to download. And you look at that, you know, long of a time frame. really interest rates were sort of, you know, call it four to six, pen, four to six percent for many years. You had the 1970s, which really is the outlier with, you know, the fact that you could have bought a, a 30-year U.S. Treasury at a 15% yield. If I wrote the book back then, I would have had one page, buy a U.S. Treasury for 30 years, and I'll write the, re, the rewrite in 30 years. But, you know, lower, lower for longer and, and negative rates, uh, I think 
we're starting to see a lot of people who said, look, this can't last. We're going to get inflation. Um, I don't know where you sit on lower for longer and, and just, you know, interest rates in general. I think, unfortunately, um, the question's kind of been answered. Uh, and that is, first of all, you know, the Japanese have been doing this for, for decades. And so the idea that um, you can only have low interest rates for a short period of time um, is just fundamentally not true. Um, and I think here, here in the US, I mean, think about what, what really has happened um, post-crisis and that you know, obviously drop rates significantly you know, during in the post-financial crisis era to a point where um, the Fed started to raise rates again. Um, but it, it was, you know, in, in a, certainly in a historical context, based upon, you know, I'm sure that the data that you saw from the Bank of England, it was still incredibly low by historical standards, um, where we peaked out. And then there was that just sort of natural pressure, wasn't it? That every time that um, there was a sort of back to rent rate rise, there was a, you know, a rumble in the bond market. And um, it, was, it was clear it was going to be difficult to, to raise rates to quote unquote normal levels. And then obviously, lo and behold, we're in a situation where the next crisis comes along and we've got rates back at zero. So I think, I think, the, I think the key challenge for, for, for governments and, and for markets is that there's just, there's just too much debt in the world. It's too much sovereign debt, it's too much corporate debt, it's too much personal debt. And from that perspective, Low interest rates is the one policy that probably suits um, policymakers on both sides of the aisle. So, certainly, the median voter uh, has been good good amount of information on this, uh, good amount of surveys done. But the median voter in the U.S. at least has swung you know swung to the left and uh, is in favor of stimulus, in favor of those kind of policies. And I think when you're thinking about um, you know, the problem that we have fundamentally, we have a problem where we have too much debt, we have too many, too many debtors, um, but yet we have a lot of money um, that is uh, controlled by savers. So how do you, how do you uh, affect a transition um, from savers, a wealth transfer from, from savers to debtors? And really, from a policy perspective, what um, policymakers have found out is that the best way to do that is by printing money because nobody really understands what you're doing and everybody is kind of okay with it. And um, it you know, clearly helps people who, who have debt. And um, you know, in terms of savers, the benefit to, to savers is it typically results in higher asset prices, which you know, savers tend to be the ones that, although they need income and the income side is, of the balance sheet is punished, the asset side um, rises. And so I think the, the effect of all of that is um, a weaker or devalue, devaluation of the currency, um, which is kind of where all this goes. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's now a lower for longer uh, environment. It's very difficult to see how we get back to uh, normal interest rates, whatever that may be. Yeah, what, whatever that may be is, uh, that's, yeah, it's a good way of saying it. I, I think, you know, you mentioned the currencies and there's also this challenge if the U.S. was to, to, let's say, go to a, if we think 3% is a, is a normal natural rate of interest and who knows what it is, you know, the, the dollar would surge and that, that causes, it, it's almost on a relative basis. Uh, no one can really, you know, raise it that much. But the, the interesting thing too is that uh, 10 years ago, everyone, uh, and I was probably included, I said, look, all this money printing has, has got to lead to inflation. 
but the velocity of money, you know, how many times a, a dollar, a single dollar changes hands keeps going down. And, uh, you know, I think that's been a, a big part of why we, we haven't seen inflation. Although, you know, asset prices, you could argue that that's where the inflation happened. Yeah, I think I think that um, that that's certainly where inflation happened. Um, it was one one um, very obvious outbreak um, where we did get inflation. But if you think about also what happened uh, in terms of the velocity, is that you know the Fed printed money after the financial crisis. A lot of that money went to the banks, and the banks kept the money, they didn't distribute it into the economy um, because they were scared, obviously, of lending money, and you know because it was a financial crisis, there was a lot of um, regulatory pressure on banks to to do all sorts of things, um, which uh, lending money, in other words, the arguably the root crisis, the root cause of the crisis in the first place, um, we're not going to do again quickly. And so it was sort of that that money never got into the economy um, in the way that I think people expected, and so you had a kind of austerity, if you will, um, from the banking sector. In terms of putting that money back it back to work into the economy, and then from the government as well. I mean, the government was was trying to cut costs uh, in that period as well, um, but I don't think that's that's the same this time. It's definitely not the same. So this time you have a situation where you know the, the money printing is is obviously much more severe, um, a, a serious multiple of what it was in two thousand and eight, and there seems to be. Um, broad consensus on both sides of the aisle to get as much stimulus into the economy as possible. And obviously, we've seen that through the various different programs that have been enacted, but you know, citizens, individual citizens being given money directly by the government um, for the first time, uh, small business loans, you, know, you, you name it, you, you've seen it. So I don't think we're going to have that issue this time around. I think um, we're not going to face any kind of austerity um, type measures and you know th- this very well may be the environment that uh, that causes inflation. You know, recently, so the the TIPS bonds, right? The Treasury Inflation Protected Bonds, which of course you know what they are, but I'll just uh, say for the audience, uh, I thought it was quite fascinating that the last two auctions went off. Uh, I think the one, the ten-year, went off at a price of one hundred six and a negative point four something, so just under half a percent negative yield to maturity, and that. Um, the idea that that we are issuing negative rate bonds, I think, is uh, is quite telling for for what the market thinks about where inflation is going for sure. Yeah, and and of course, the Fed fund futures as well, which is a guide to um, where Fed funds rates are going to be. Obviously, at some point in the future, um, went negative last month um, for the first time, and you know, I think you you, you sort of had um, you know everybody from the Fed chairman. At least, sort of publicly saying that um, didn't think there'd be negative rates, but you know, slowly but surely, other members of the Fed start saying, you know, negative rates could be could be a policy that would work, work here, and could be the way to get a V-shaped recovery, and you know, that, that's how these things start. So, at least the market um, has some expectations that we will see negative rates here in the U.S. for the first time uh, in sometime in the next twelve months. Yeah, and I, I think also. Uh, th- you know, there's always this talk about as the 60-40 portfolio. I, I hesitate to even bring it up because we could do two hours on this. But <laughs> I, I do think one of the things that will happen at some point, and I'm not saying it's going to, it could be 20 years from now, but, you know, a 30-year treasury at a one-something yield has a duration of like 25, but, you know, back of the napkin. By the way, what that means is if interest rates went up 100 basis points tomorrow, in theory, it's not exactly how it happens, right? But those could go down 
you know, 24%, so 200 basis points, 48. I have no idea when it's going to happen, but, the, but just the, the symmetry of, of rates this low, um, it, it's, you know, the 60, 40 portfolio, it worked because bonds went up this time in the crisis and, you know, they've retraced, but at some point it's, I think it's going to be one of those surprise things that no one really is thinking about. Yeah. I, I think we did some good research actually on that, um, over the last year. And what we found actually is that the ideal portfolio from a risk return perspective was actually um, 60% um, stocks and 40% gold and uh, replacing bonds entirely. And so uh, I'm obviously not, not suggesting to any, any listener that they should do that, but I, I just thought it was, it was hugely instructive that from a pure mathematical perspective, the bonds actually didn't add any value to the portfolio and that uh, you can replace your entire bond portfolio with gold and get a better risk-adjusted return. Um, But I think the moral of that story is that my take on it is that I I do think the 60-40 portfolio has to be be, um, reimagined for the next 10 years. And I think this idea of, you know, we've been in a falling interest rate environment for you know, the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and we keep coming right. back all the way to 1980. <laughs> and so like, wait, we're rates still, they're still falling, you know, and we could be, we could be talking about this, um, you know, in terms of next year or year after, if they go to negative rates, they're still falling. I um, know. But I know. And at, at some point you say, you know, what is the value of bonds in the portfolio? Because traditionally, obviously a key part of having bonds in the portfolio was obviously the lack of correlation, but the income that they produce, if they're no longer producing income, um, then obviously that's a big, it's a big issue for investors. Um, so I think people will look, will look to try and uh, change that allocation up. And, and I don't think they'll replace, clearly won't replace bonds altogether. But I, I do think that we'll see some other asset classes, gold, uh, other real assets, you know, come into the mix in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Yeah, and I know we don't we don't have too much time, so I'm, I'm uh, I won't open up any really big topics. I, I will mention though that I don't know why I did it, but I went back and you know you can do sort of a, a Google search and narrow the the dates. And I, I looked at some articles. I think it was right at the top of you know when you could buy that thirty year Treasury at sixteen percent. And there were some people you know in the financial media who said this is the, the the chance of a lifetime, right? Not only do you get the yield, but you get the appreciation because falling rates, you know, bonds go up. And there were other people who said, oh no, you know, keep keep your money in cash because inflation could go to 25, 30% and you're going to lose everything. I mean, it's just so in the moment, it, you know, after the fact, and like anything in finance, right? After the fact, it's easy. But uh, in the moment, people were actually like, no, 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 don't buy 16% uh, treasury bonds. Seems quite silly, right? Yeah. I mean, again, it's always in the context of where it was. I don't know what particular period that you were looking at, but it was probably it was probably the late 70s um, when obviously there was we had we were ravaged by uh, inflation and uh, you know Paul Volcker ultimately had to come in and, and kill inflation through massive uh, increases in interest rates. But yeah I mean there, there would have been a very active argument at the time which was to say on the one hand you, know, you buy a bond that has a very nice uh, or high level of income um, but the reason why I had a high level of income was because there was a high level of inflation in the economy. So that's that right. Was the risk that inflation would have gone higher. Um, and yeah, it's uh, hindsight's always the best investment strategy. You can never go wrong. So as as I'm thinking, um, uh, any chance you'll change X out to the uh, 
the relegation promotion investment. So it's probably too many letters, right? Would that be? <laughs> but I think X yeah, out sums it up, sums it up perfectly in terms of the, um, you know, you X out the losers. We got the ticker code as X out. I think it's sort of, uh, yeah, we, we, we got that one right in terms of the naming of it, I think. <laughs> yeah. And you, you would do more than just that. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes, of course, to, to granite shares. You've got a, if anybody wants to, to check that out, I think there's a Forbes article that uh, your folks were nice enough to send over that they did on you. So I'll put that in the notes. And uh, I, I think I'm uh, like you, I'm looking forward to sports maybe getting back. It's uh, hopefully, I, although without fans, it's a little weird, but I, I suppose the good news is at least with, with European football, uh, soccer, as we say, you know, you have the chanting and, and that seems to yeah at least some, some normalcy to it. So yeah, they have. Um, if you ever, if you ever watched a game without fans, it's, a, it's incredibly weird. So we have this phenomenon in Europe already, due to the unfortunate legacy of hooliganism. And so every now and again, um, a country—it's normally at the international level—but um, a game between two countries gets plays. It gets played, as you say, in a closed doors environment, which is without fans. And that's because of there's been so many problems with um, with hooliganism and rioting. Um, and so if you ever watch one of those games, it is very weird. So although it's, it's definitely a step forward and, and, you know, clearly welcome, you know, any kind of normalcy back, um, I think anybody watching it for the first time will, will think it very strange. Well, well, I've enjoyed having you on. This has been great. A good, good broad discussion. And, uh, every time I bring up a topic, I'm like, we could probably do five hours on this. So, uh, <laughs> it's been great to have you on. I, I appreciate the time and, uh, you know, best of luck with everything. Derek, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you today uh, and good luck with everything. Thanks, Will. For everyone else, uh, we'll talk to you soon. 